0: Welcome to The Gardens Podcast. This message titled, The Calling, was given by Darren Roundson, and is the fourth in our series, The Kingdom of God.
2: This place sent messengers of you guys need a Bible, raise your hand, and uh, someone will pass you a Bible from the sides. Um, we're going to jump into Mark, Chapter 1. I will try not to do feedback. Um, let me just go back as this gets figured out, it's a little hot. Um, The Seek and Respond Night is going to be every third Wednesday. We are going to have a prayer and worship night. There's no agenda. This is a time where we're calling our entire church to gather for prayer and worship, and that's it. We're going to pray for the city. We're going to pray for each other. We're going to just invite God to just bless the city, and and we're going to sing and worship and do all that together. So every month, you can count on the third Wednesday of every month, we're going to adopt that kind of rhythm that John talked about. I really want to call you guys to that. I just think we need to get a place where we are praying together as a church, the whole body together praying for the city. Does that sound okay? All right, good. Yeah, so this week is the first kicking it off uh, for the next few months, okay? Now, we're in Mark chapter one. How's everybody doing? Good? I, don't, I was not in here. Um, did anybody run in the marathon? I'm just curious, marathon runners. And you're here. Way to go. Way to go. Yeah, we've got a couple. Any, any, any of you guys place? Just, no, you got a medal. You guys got a medal. That's cool. That's um, no, great. That's really cool. Hey, so Mark, chapter 1, verse uh, 16 through 20. Let me just give you a, uh, a brief kind of update or a, a, a whatever, a synopsis of where we've been. Mark starts off the gospel explaining that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited, promised Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, he brings the good news. It says that Jesus comes and immediately His ministry starts and it's, it's immersing people or baptizing people in the Holy Spirit. Jesus Himself is baptized. The, uh, God the Father says to Him, uh, You are My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And out of that He begins His ministry. He's baptized, anointed with the Holy Spirit, and He begins His ministry out of the identity of who He is. I think we need to sit with that, that Jesus begins His ministry out of a full realization, affirmation of who He is. He is the Beloved. And it says that immediately, right after He's given that identity, that confirmation, He is ushered or compelled by the Holy Spirit to be tested and tempted by uh, the accuser. And the accuser in other Gospels kind of De- uh, attack his identity but what we see in Mark is he's just trying to get right to the point. Mark's kind of a, a quick so not, he's just going one thing after another. He just wants you to get to the point and it's almost like uh, the first eight chapters are getting you to the point where, Jesus, uh, where, where Peter will finally say, you are the Christ you are the Messiah. And so we see Mark using a word immediately all the time and, and but uh, so we see him just getting right to the point and uh, so Jesus is tempted and, and, and it says that he um, is basically, Mark is basically using the Old Testament as a lens to describe this Messiah, Jesus. He's using, um, in this particular passage where he's tempted, he, he's basically saying, Mark is saying that Jesus is the f- uh, fulfillment of Adam and the fulfillment of Israel all wrapped into one. So he, he's in the wilderness for 40 days. It's, it's, it's kind of referencing 40 years in the wilderness for the Israelites. He's also, at the end of it, he's with the wild beasts and the angels wait on him. Basically, he's restoring the created order. Do you guys remember this? It's pretty exciting. It's kind of weird. Wild beasts and the angels. Um, but the story continues. Jesus begins his public ministry and his message we looked at last week. And His message is, the time is fulfilled, the age to come is here. That which has been promised has come here, right now. And, and that age to come which was promised through the Old Testament uh, uh, of God bringing and entering into human history with shalom, with peace, with wholeness, with uh, joy, with a new spirit, with a new heart, with a new law, with a new covenant, that's present. And then he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom has come near. God's sovereign rule, or as I like to say it, the expression of which God designed or desired us to live in in the first place is right here. And um, that's kind of his message, which we're going to explore over the next year. We're going to break it down and see what that looks like. Um, but then he, what he does is he says, repent and believe. The good news. And repentance and belief together is is more of a statement like this align yourselves with my agenda and become a full participant in this new reality. So Jesus says to everyone listening that this sovereign rule of God is present, this which is marked by shalom, by peace, by wholeness, by healing. It's here. Align yourself with this. Let go of all other expectations that you might have or ways and align yourself with my. Way, and become a full participant in that reality. That was last, that was last week's message. It's pretty powerful, and uh, we're going to continue now um, into this uh, into this message. So, if you would go to Mark chapter one, verse fourteen, uh, verse sixteen. Excuse me. It says this: As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in the boat, mending nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. And followed him. One thing you guys need to know is this. Mark is writing a story that we have to follow in chronological order. I guess it would be this way for you guys. And in this chronological order, Mark says that this is who Jesus is. So as a reader, we catch that, okay, Jesus is the Messiah because we're reading it as disciples. Remember why Mark is writing this this account of Jesus' life? It's to remind us disciples to wake up to remember who Jesus really was. Because it's 65 AD, we're in Rome, and there's persecution going on. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are being burned on torches. We're being persecuted. We're dying for the faith. And some of us have grown weary. And so Mark writes this under the direction of Peter, who we just read, Simon. He says it's it's a call to wake up to who Jesus really is. And we know as a reader that this is who Jesus is. But in the story of Mark, there's another kind of storyline happening. And in the story of Mark, the disciples don't know who Jesus is until Mark chapter 8, when Peter confesses who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He'll say, you're the Son of God. Are you guys with me? So in Mark chapter 1... Nobody really knows who he is, except for demons. We're going to read that next week. We're going to see this theme throughout the entire book of Mark. The people that get him are the people you wouldn't expect. So we're going to see that demons get him. We're going to see that Gentile women get him when they shouldn't get anything. If if you're a Gentile woman, that's what Mark's writing. Most of you are. Um, I'm just kidding. Whatever. I'm sorry. Um... None of you are like that. But you it's <laughs> You guys are, what we're going to see is that that the story of Mark is that of the people that should get it, the disciples, they don't get it. And so here's my question, if if you understand that theme, and I'm introducing it tonight. do you understand that this, the disciples don't really know who he is all throughout the first eight chapters. They're going to question, who's this guy with authority? He he, he even calms the storms and the winds obey him. Demons are are, are obeying him. It's just this weird guy. They don't get it. So if they don't get it until Mark chapter 8, why on earth do the disciples drop their nets? Why? Why? That's the one question I want to answer tonight. And in order to do that, I'm not going to go to the Old Testament. I want to give you Jewish context. Because Jesus was a Jew, believe it or not. Some of you don't know that. He was. So, hang with me for a moment, because I want to answer that one question. Why why do these four men in these four verses drop their nets, leave their father in the boat, and follow Jesus if they didn't know who He was? You see, Galilee is where Jesus is walking, and Galilee is, a, is, is an Orthodox Jewish region of Israel. And for those of you that know anything about the Jewish religion, and if any of you are here for us going over the Ten Commandments, you know that for the Jewish community, they believed in their worldviews, in their history, that God had spoken to their ancestors. This is the first century. So right around uh, you know, 0 A.D., To 100 AD, that's the first century. And Jesus is ministering around 30 AD. And during this time in the Orthodox region of Galilee, the Jewish community knew that God had spoken to them in history. God had chosen a guy named Moses at a place called Mount Sinai, where God spoke the words of Torah, life, the way of life. And Torah is what? It's the first five books of our Bible. So God, for the Jewish community in the first century, they literally believed that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were the spoken words recorded of Yahweh to the Jewish community. So their whole worldview is shaped by the fact that Yahweh spoke to them at Mount Sinai. You guys with me? So their entire way of being, their entire life, is shaped over that reality, that that happened. And so for the first century Jew, relationship with the Creator wasn't really something you understood. The only thing you knew was obedience to Torah. Was obedience to the the law to the the legislation, to the oral traditions of the Jewish community. That is all you knew. That was the best way to live. That was the secret to life. So your entire world is wrapped around Torah. It wasn't an option to obey it. It was expected. So the key to survival in the first century and for centuries was education. In fact, a a famous Jewish historian says, uh, a guy named Josephus, some of you might have heard of Josephus, he's quoted saying, above all else, we pride ourselves on the education of our children. And so the education of children to understand Torah is the only way that a community can form their entire society around that reality. God had spoken words of life to that community. Do you guys follow? So an education system is what the entire Jewish community is built around. So by the age of six, every Jewish boy and girl enters into the education system. It's called Beit Sefer. And Beit Sefer is called House of of the Book. House of Book. And every Jewish boy and girl for four years will go and study at the local synagogue. And at the local synagogue they will learn to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Torah. By age 10, every Jewish boy and girl should have Torah memorized. Remember, this isn't a written culture. They didn't have uh, writing. In fact, most places didn't even have a scroll of Scripture. If they did, it was very special. But you had an oral tradition, so memorization was key. And so the rabbis would, would teach these little kids, six to ten-year-olds, to memorize Scripture. And, so, and, and it wasn't just about memorization. It was about understanding what was going on. So when, when you would read in Exodus, God promising a land full of milk and honey, the rabbis would bring out honey and make the kids taste honey to remind them of what it was like to be an ancestor, to, to wrap their minds around Torah. So for the first four years from, of, of this uh, first level of education, the Jewish boy and girl, every Jewish boy and girl, would be at a local synagogue studying at a rabbi, with a rabbi. And they would memorize Torah. But what happens in this, this process of education is women, men and women begin to elevate themselves out of who's naturally gifted in scripture. So by the age of 10, the rabbis would know who was good and who was great. So by the age of 10, you would finish your education at Beit Sefer. And what would happen is if you were the best of the best, you would continue your education to Beit Talmud, the second level of education. But most kids didn't go there. Most kids by the age of 10 were told, you're not good enough for this next level of education. Go home, learn the family trade, and and start your family at the age of 10. Most of them wouldn't start their family until 15, 16, 17 years old. But by age 10, they were already told they weren't good enough. So they would go home and they would become apprentices. They would learn the family trade. So if your father was a fisherman, you'd fish. And one day you'd hope that he'd pass on his his business to you. If if your father was a carpenter, you'd become a carpenter. Your mom would teach you, if you're a woman, how to be a wife in a Jewish household. You would learn the family trade. By age 10, there's a separation. But the best of the best, they got to go on to continue their education at the second level of education called Beit Talmud. This is called the house of learning. And here those that were the best of the best would continue their education for four more years where they they would learn the rest of the entire Jewish Bible. 39 books they would have memorized in four years. Genesis to Malachi. They wouldn't just study Scripture, but they would study the oral traditions. They would study interpretations. They would study other rabbis. They would study all the commentaries on Torah, on on the, the Jewish Old Testament. So they would begin to apply oral and written tradition to every circumstance. Rabbis were not interested in you just knowing information for information's sake. Rabbis would rarely ask a question in the house of learning and give an answer. The purpose is not just to memorize, it's to apply. Do you ever wonder why Jesus, whenever He's asked a question, rarely answers it with a straight answer? but kind of always answers a question with another question, that's a rabbinic form of teaching. The expectation is that you learn to wrestle with your faith. And so the best of the best would continue their education. They would go on to this Beit Talmud, and they would, they would excel um, where they would learn and study the entire Old Testament. And, and again, those that were the best of the best of the best, those that were really, really good, Those that were naturally gifted, those that had it memorized, those that had it figured out, those that were, they were good. They would continue on their education by age 14. They would go to Beit Midrash. If you weren't good enough, which most people wouldn't continue their education, you would just continue on and study the family trade. You'd become an apprentice. But those that were the best of the best of the best, they would go to Beit Talmud, and it wasn't even guaranteed that they would get to go in. It's the house of study. And at Beit Talmud, I'm sorry, Beit Midrash, forgive me. Beit, Beit, Beit Midrash. These Jewish words are confusing sometimes. But by age 14, they would go to Beit Midrash, where they would go and petition and apply to follow a rabbi. The greatest education you could have is to become a Talmudin a disciple of a rabbi. And so what the best of the best of the best would do is they would select from who and uh, which one was the best. There was tons of rabbis. And each one had a different interpretation of Torah. Each each rabbi had their own kind of um, unique facet of of the way they saw life from Torah, from the different commentaries. In fact, the way they they taught people, the way they saw people, the way they taught and and experienced Torah, a rabbi, it was called yoke. So if a disciple wanted to uh, uh, apply to a rabbi, he he would go to a rabbi and say, I want to be your disciple. And the rabbi would begin to grill and question This student, this kid, this 14, 15 year old. He would ask questions like, Does this kid have what it takes to follow Me? Does this kid have what it takes to spread My yoke? You ever wonder why Jesus says, Take My yoke upon you? It's dealing with His teaching, His way of life. And this rabbi would grill this student on everything, a 14 or 15 year old, he would grill him on, on the, um, other rabbis, on phrases, on different concepts of, of the entire Old Testament. He would make sure that this kid had what it took to be his disciple. Because the rabbi didn't have time to train him unless this kid could become like that rabbi. And so the rabbi would grill the kid, this teenager. And if the kid didn't have what it took, the rabbi would say something like, you, are, um, you obviously love God and you love Torah, but go home and learn the family trade. And so at age 14 or 15, these kids would just go home and begin to take on what their families did. But if the best of the best of the best, if after you pass this application process, this 14-year-old kid gets through all the answers, if the rabbi believed that this kid had what it took to be his disciple, a rabbi would say to him, Come follow me. Come follow me. The rabbi would tell a kid to come follow me. One of the greatest honors you could have in Beit Midrash is to be a disciple of a rabbi. And what you would do is if a a rabbi invited you to follow him, is you would leave your father, your mother, your village, your local synagogue. You'd leave your friends and your family and everything else that defines you. And you would devote your entire life to following your rabbi. Your goal as a disciple was not just to do what the rabbi did, but to be like the rabbi. Your goal as a disciple was to become like your rabbi. When, when, when a rabbi said, come follow me, he's saying, I believe you can be like me. And Jesus begins his public ministry around the age of 30. This is around the time rabbis began their public ministry at the age of 30. And he's in a historical... Orthodox Jewish region of Galilee, of Israel in Galilee. And he stumbles upon the Sea of Galilee, Andrew and Peter, Andrew and Simon. And he says to them, come follow me. And they drop their neck. Read what Scripture says really quick. I want you to highlight this. Verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 16. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, He saw Simon, or Peter, and His brother Andrew, casting a net into the sea. It's just a snapshot of what they're doing. And look at what it says. For they were fishermen. This is who they were. Why were they fishermen? Because at some point, In the society that is built around education, someone told them, you're not good enough. Go home and learn the family trade. At some point, like every Jewish boy and girl, they were told by a rabbi, you're not good enough. Go home and do what your parents do. And at that point, not only does the education system define them, but their family begins to define them. And what they do, casting nets into the sea, the produce, the production of what they do, Defines who they are. And a rabbi, not the Messiah at this point, not a prophet, not the Son of God, just a rabbi walks along the Sea of Galilee and says, come follow me. And it continues on and it gives you another snapshot. There's two brothers in the boat with their father. How old do you think these kids are? Some say John was probably 14 years old. Peter probably was the oldest of the disciples, probably around the age of 20 or older, because he's the only one that had to pay temple tax in the story of the Gospel of Matthew. And you had to pay temple tax at the age of 20, so the rest of the disciples are younger than that. Do you see what's going on? They're in the boat with their father. The father hasn't passed off this... uh, this, um, way have life to their kids yet. They're with their father which defines who they are and Jesus, a rabbi, says to them come follow me and they drop everything. Why do they drop everything? It's not because he's the son of God yet guys, it's because someone a rabbi says I believe in you. A rabbi comes to these dropouts to the B-listers to the, to the The JV team. And says, I believe you can become like me. I think you can do what I do. They don't know Jesus until chapter 8. They don't really get what's going on. But the entire rabbinic education system is built around this understanding the the entire rabbinic education system is built on the fact that a rabbi has faith in his disciple some of you man i'll tell you what let me answer that question and 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 go off I, I, Why did did the disciples drop their nets? Because Jesus believes in them. I think some of you need to hear this for the first time, and maybe you haven't heard this. But faith doesn't start with you believing in God. Faith starts with God believing in you. Jesus calls us where we are, not where we should be. He calls us as we are, not as we should be. Some of us forget the most profound fact of our, our journey with Christ, that before we could even have faith in him, he says, come follow me. Jesus is going to take a bunch of random fishermen, tax collectors, these nobodies, these secondhand, skipped over by everyone else, and He changes the world. Because the kingdom message is a kingdom of affirmation. Jesus calls us where you're at, not where you should be, and He invites you to follow Him into wholeness. The journey of faith begins with us simply recognizing who we are in His eyes. That is good news. This is extraordinary news, man, I find it funny that i I get to teach her once in a while, or I have to teach because this is this is a very interesting passage to me because i as you begin to study the text, sometimes texts just stick out as, that's for me. This is the first message I ever studied in, in uh, Bible school. The first message I ever had to teach in Bible school. It's the fact that Jesus actually actually believes in me before I can even believe in Him. Uh, in, in him. That He believes that I could do what He does before I can even believe and, and see what He does. That I can, I can become like Him. Or just the fact that He says, Darren, you're beautiful, you're good enough. This message is a message of hope for... And maybe I'm just going to tell you how I feel uh, about this message or where this resonates with me and maybe some of you can connect. But the truth is this, I can easily believe in a God who's infinite, in a, in a God who's three in one, I can believe in a God who who created the universe out of words. He spoke it into existence. I, I can believe that He's eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent. I can believe in all of those things, guys, but I have a hard time truly believing that He believes in me. Maybe some of you struggle with this. Maybe some of you like me struggle with the fact that when you look in the mirror, you have to remind yourself of what He says about you. Because I have to get up here every week with anxiety, sometimes panic attacks, with doubts, with a faithless, is is God going to show up? Am I good enough? And I begin to define myself by who's here, or in the world, I'll define myself by, by what people say about me, by what the education system has told me by what my parents have told me, by my friends, by the feelings I think those people are thinking about me. I'll define myself by what the world standards are, by the bank account, by the clothes, by the posts that you post on Facebook. You define yourself by everything else other than the fact that the creator of the universe has said, I believe in you. And so for me, this is where it all begins that it's not just a rabbi anymore, guys. It's the God of the universe who says to you, you're good enough. I believe in you. I love you. I know so many of us struggle with insecurities and we're defined by everything else, but brothers and sisters, the message on the kingdom is that the kingdom begins with the affirmation that you are good enough and He says to you, come follow me. How's that sitting? Some of you need to stay right there and just allow the Messiah, Rabbi, Son of God to say over and over again, you're not defined by what your parents said. You're not defined by this past relationship. You're not defined by the abuse, by the addiction. You're not defined by anything else other than what I say you are. That's right. This is, this is the message to receive. That our hearts cry out for, Lord, do you love me? And the answer is yes. As you are and not as you should be. I'll stand here and testify to the fact that I hate getting up here I don't think I'm good enough to stand up here I'm waiting for someone to say I found you out, you're fake but that's not true those are the lies from the enemy and the truth is I can stand here in the reality of who God is and I'm just fine where I'm at so here's what we're going to do I think many of you feel the same way I do. And so Brian's going to come up. He's going to, and the rest of the team is going to lead us in worship. And tonight, we're going to worship God for who He is and what He says about us. And I want to invite you, if you're like me, that just need prayer tonight for what I just talked about, you need to stand up where you're at right now so we can pray that you would receive your identity. So would you just stand where you're at? We just want to pray your identity over you. You can stand in the reality of who you are, whether it's been in the past, whether it's where you're at in trial. It doesn't matter. Just stand up so you can receive who you are. Thank you. I know there's way more than that, guys. Don't be afraid. Insecurity has defined you. Past relationships have defined you. Addictions have defined you. And tonight, we just want to break all of that and say let Jesus define us tonight. Amen? So for those of you that are standing, thank you for standing. Those of you that are sitting, would you look at your brothers and sisters around the room and know that something hit them and re- stand up next to them, support them, and lay a hand and begin to pray that they would receive who they are in the name of Jesus. So would you guys stand with me? And let's just begin to pray for our brothers and sisters that they would receive their identities tonight. Thanks, guys.
0: Thanks for listening If you'd like to hear other messages from the garden Or would like to find out more about the garden church Check out our website at thegardenlb.org
3: It's a rule.